Last week, we ended up with a very long discussion on a particular verse. Uh, If you would, turn back to the uh, epistle or sermon to the Hebrews. We ended up uh, digging through one particularly thorny interpretational problem. If you read the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 6. At this point, we are in the middle of a bunch of quotations from the Old Testament, where the author of Hebrews is making an argument based on the Scriptures. Remember that when the author of Hebrews wrote this, there might not have been any New Testament Scripture yet. We're not sure when this was written. And so, for him, what what is Scripture? Scripture is the Old Testament. So he's making an argument. And he's quoting from various different places. And so in verse 6 he says, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And we sent this back, um, we all went back to Deuteronomy. And it was um, back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, 43. Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. And we talked about the fact that, depending on your translation, you may not have that verse or that part of the verse at all. All right. And just as a very quick recap, if we think about a timeline, and we were to assume that the book of Deuteronomy was written in, we'll go with 1400 BC. All right. And if we are in 2022. Alright, how did this happen? Well, let's just say that, um, alright, we have the book of Hebrews, right, right here, alright? If we say Hebrews was written in, let's say, A.D. 70 or whatever. Lots of debates on that. That's there. He's using a selection from a verse that, when you look at the KJV, which is obviously done before our time, uh, you won't see it in the KJV. You also won't see it in the NKJV. And uh, depending on, for example, the ESV, depending on what edition of the ESV you have, you may or may not see it. Because apparently they either added it or took it away from their verse in Deuteronomy. And we have to ask the question, why? And this is what we went through last time. The author of Hebrews, all right, he's, he is a witness to say that actually that verse was there. What else do we have from that? Well, if we look at these modern translations, these were all based on what is called, roughly at this point, uh, this would be like 700 to 1,000, all right? What is called the MT, or the Masoretic Text. And so these are nice Hebrew manuscripts from uh, a great deal of time after this particular point. All right. But our, generally speaking, our, the, the Old Testament of the KGV and the NKGV, and a lot of what we use in the Old Testament is based off of these manuscripts. And these manuscripts certainly do not have what you have in the, author, in the book of the Hebrews here. And so where does it come from? If Hebrews knows about it, is there any other evidence for it? And the answer is yes. And we talked about how the... LXX, a.k.a. the Septuagint, which, what is the Septuagint? It means 70, and it is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, named after the supposedly 70 translators of that. And so the, uh, you've got a bunch of 
Jews who don't speak Hebrew or Greeks that want to be Jewish, all right, that also don't speak or read Hebrew, and so they translate the Hebrew Bible at that time, much older than this text, into Greek. And the, many Jews used that, and when the church happened, many of the Christians also used this as well. And as, as more of the church was Greek, not Jewish, the Septuagint, the Septuagint was in fact the Bible of the, of the early church. Give or take, give it, give it a hundred years, and you've got mostly Greek speaking, and that is that is true. Uh, the New Testament authors, depending on the New Testament author, you'll get different things. Yeah. That is a good question. I don't have an answer. The, the oldest full copy of the Septuagint in a single book is the fourth century A.D. All right. Depends on which piece of it. It was broken up into pieces. Long story. Basically, Guy stole part of Codex Sinaiticus, took part of it to the British Library. Part of it is still in the original monastery on the Arabian Peninsula. So, but yes, most of it would be actually in the British Library. But you do have older, you do have older selections from back here in the BC early AD. Yeah. The Septuagint. That is a fantastic question, actually. Um, generally speaking, all right, people will look at the Septuagint and go, it is not a monolithic thing, as if 70 people, 72 people, really did sit down and do it all at one time. That's not a good representation of the history of it. But generally speaking, it's the word for the Greek translation. And for the most part, it's fairly stable and there's not like a bunch of different people translating the same thing. I don't know if that's helpful or not. That's a really complicated question. It would be good to go through it sometime for the nerds. Yeah? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. We also have witness, and if you've got the Greek people, all right, the Greek speakers translating from Hebrew into that, and it's in the Septuagint, and that means it was in whatever Hebrew manuscripts they were using at this point. And and this we and this has been known for a long time because the church has been using the Septuagint since there, since the church happened. Uh, now, in terms of other witnesses, something we didn't know into the fifties, there was the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls did actually have a Hebrew manuscript with essentially this in it, and so we're like, okay, now it's now it's a really hard question, and. Uh, this is one of those things where people will, you, you will get debate on this because the data is genuinely ambiguous. And so I went through that last time, A, because it's in our text and it's worth explaining, but also just to expose some of you to the, the funds of what is called uh, textual criticism. And if you're interested, I've got books I can recommend you for you to read. Today we're going to continue on our study of Hebrews, much less textual criticism today. More, let's just study the Old Testament and see how the New Testament reflects on it. If you would, if you don't have it already, you're going to open yourself up to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. And I'm going to ask you, if you look in your Bibles, where does it say, if yours has the notes, Hebrews 1.7, where does it say that verse comes from? 
the quote. He's quoting something. Where does it come from? Psalm 104, verse 4. For, so if you turn to Psalm, this is what your group's going to be talking about in a second. Psalm 104, verse 4. It says this. He makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flaming fire. Now, I'm going to give you a few minutes as a group, and here is essentially your discussion. All right? Read the context of Psalm 104. All right? Figure out what that's about in its own context. And then the next question is to ask why would the author of Hebrews use this verse? Okay? So read it as a group. I'll give you a few minutes. You'll want to pair with somebody. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about it in a minute. Give you one more minute. Hey, Chip, your team figure it out? Why would he pick this first? Don't say yet. Don't say it. You have another 20 seconds.
right. The reason why we're doing this, just to make sure we're clear, is you've got the author of Hebrews here. He is making an argument. He is trying to prove his case. All right? He's clearly writing this to a group of people who take this document, right? Uh, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, or the Septuagint. All right? he's, they take it as authoritative. So he's making an argument. I'm going to tell you what is true, and just like we do, I'm going to tell you what is true based on the Bible. All right? And so what that means is when they quote a Bible verse, that's generally what they're doing, it's good to stop and say, okay, if he's doing that, what did he actually see in the Old Testament? All right? And so um, do we have a group that can tell us what, contextually speaking, what is the point of Psalm 104.4? Uh, I see two reasons why he might have picked this. The first one is the psalm is talking about how um, God is over creation. Mm-hmm. So the author of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is supreme, so he would have to be over creation for one thing. Mm-hmm. And then verse 4, his messengers are ministers to him. That sort of is continuing his argument that he's above the angels in authority. And, yeah. Okay. Now let's go back to Hebrews, all right? Contextually there, how does that, if that's true, and I think you're totally right, how does that fit with what the author of Hebrews is trying to do right there? Instead of just guessing what it is, we're going to be explicit. What point, what, what, in, what in the author's argument, all right, why is this here? Not this team. Somebody, some other team. Why is it here? The Go ahead. That's right. They are made for him, right? And so let all God's angels worship him. And again, when he says, when he brings the firstborn into world, all right, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. They are a created thing. They are meant to serve God and serve his son. Right? That is that is why they're using this. From a background standpoint, why would this language even be here? And uh, minor point, but for those who are interested in studying more, all right, when you're talking about really old stuff, and so this would be really old stuff written way back here-ish, all right, when you're talking really old stuff, old Hebrew, we don't have a lot of documents from that period of time that are in Hebrew, other than the Old Testament itself. Uh, so that's extremely rare in terms of even inscriptions. But you can find the occasional small thing. So what Hebrew scholars often do is they will look at other literature from that time period, and they will go, all right, we're going to find cognate languages and go, maybe this word only shows up once in the Old Testament, but it's used a lot in this other language that is related to Hebrew. Maybe that will help us understand a little bit. And uh, you might remember this guy... um, he shows up a number of times in the Old Testament. Remember that guy? Baal, Baal, however you want to pronounce it. This is actually relevant here. Because there is, if you look in Canaanite mythology, okay, there's a fight between a man named, a, a, a fake god named Baal and a fake god named Yom. All right? Yom is actually the Hebrew word for sea. And so it's Baal versus the sea god. Well, we don't believe there was a sea god, right? Obviously. 
what you've got here is one of two things in Psalm 104. When it talks about the messengers as winds and as ministers, a flaming fire, that's language specifically. The ministers as angels of flaming fire is used of yams, ministering angels. All right? And so Baal ends up defeating the sea god in their theology. What you've got here in your Old Testament is either one of really two things. Either uh, you've got this, these notions borrowing from Old Testament ideas, or you've got an explicit critique of Canaanite mythology saying, God, the true God, Yahweh God, he is the one who makes the angels like flames of fires and ministers, not Yom and not Baal. And so there's, that's a whole another thing. If anybody's interested, you can go read about. But the author of Hebrews fairly simply, use it as the angels are ministers. Right? They do things. They're servants. They're not themselves to be worshipped, unlike the firstborn. When the firstborn is brought into the world, let the angels of God worship him. Any questions or thoughts on that? Go ahead. No? Okay. Alright. Now, uh, let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. Says this, but of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And, and we won't go on yet. That first quote, your Bibles, what does it say it's from? Psalm 45. Okay. Take your groups. I'm going to give you a little bit more time. I want you to read that context thoroughly. All right. What's going on there? Try to figure out who's talking. All right. Make sure you understand who is talking to whom. That's very important in this particular case. So so Psalm 45. Read and um, see what you can see. So is this talking about God? 
Trinitarian theology. In that case, early and proto are redundant, but yeah. Yeah. It's funny to say it. Uh, actually, if you want to be sound cooler, you would say incipient proto or early incipient proto Trinitarian. It's, incipient means something that happens at the beginning. So, depends on how fancy you want to say all right, it's been uh, five minutes, so let's let's chat about this one. What is going on in this in the psalm in the Old Testament? What in the world is going on? Anybody? Book of Hebrews. 
That's right. That's right. And so what does the psalm itself say? Who is the psalm addressed to? You're absolutely right, Chip. Who is the psalm addressed to? Who is it, well, I should say, who is it talking about? That is, that is, really is the question here, right? Okay, okay. And so if you start at the beginning... All right. It starts, who's he talking to? He's clearly talking to the king. All right. I address my verses to the king. That's verse one. All right. And your majesty, verse four, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and, and righteousness. All right. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall around you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Okay. I mean, we were talking about the king. What's going on there? Where's the female part of this? It's at, it's at the end, right? I, don't, I know that the author of Hebrews is not primarily using it for a wedding context in this particular case. All right. What I find particularly interesting is verse 6 and 7. All right. Knowing the context, he's talking about the king... All right. Verses six and seven together, all right, can be read in a using Edwardian language, proto early proto Trinitarian theology, right? All right. So do you see the the logic of where this would go? So at verse six, it addresses. All right. Now who who holds the scepter in this case in the first few verses? Who's the kingly person? Earthly king. Right? Clearly, earthly king. You get here, and now is the king at this point called God? Right? Your throne, O oh God, and the answer is yes. Right? Your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. And ever the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. All right? Great thing to say about a king. And then it says, therefore, God, your God. And this is where Trinitarian theology comes in. Because it's talking to someone who's called God, and then it says, therefore God, you're God. Alright? Has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And this is not the only time in the Old Testament that this shows up. We will actually see it later on in a selection from this very same Hebrews chapter. Alright? Now, the... If you go down to verse, uh, verse 10, you do see the daughter part, which would be why it might be called a wedding sum. Because it does, in fact, talk about a wedding and then sons and things like that. But what's going on, all right, if we recall from the, New Te- from the events of the New Testament, various things of, about Christ were hidden in the Old Testament. And they were hidden on purpose. Right? They were hidden on purpose. And they were revealed by Christ himself. And we'll see that here again in a minute, all right? Where he will point to a psalm. Jesus in one of the Gospels points to a psalm and says, read that. How do you explain that in your theology? And those who are listening can't. Jesus is pointing to something interesting. And so what's going on here is the author of Hebrews reads this and goes, this is one of those places where we have two gods, clearly. All right? 
There's a God whose throne is established forever, and then God has anointed. His own God has anointed him. And of course, Christianity is, is, no, more mon- uh, is no more polytheistic than, than the Old Testament is, than Judaism was. It's a monotheistic religion. All right? There is truly one God, but as the classic Christian formulation would be, there are two, three persons. All right? In this case, it would be Christ being anointed by God the Father. Okay? Yes? Could the, the ancient Jews have had more of an acceptance of their king being a deity, specifically Yahweh, and later, later, just, you know, first they had God and then they rejected him and then became king? Yeah, only the bad ones. Yeah. Right? Um, the, the Orthodox Jews would know there is truly only one God, for sure. And yeah. God would overlap, and like, yeah, God is our king, not, not just a, a human, and also with our God. So within, if we think about just Orthodox Old Testament theology, all right, what's the relationship between God and the king? All right, God is creator of all things, eternal. So in a different class than David or Saul. All right, so that much is very clear. What you also have in the Old Testament is you have, and this will come up here in Hebrews, you have the explicit adoption of the king as God's son. All right? God, when God talks to David, he says, you're my son. All right? Does suddenly David turn into a, a pre-existent eternal being? No. Not. And so that much is there. So there is a very close relationship between God and and that particular man in a way that there is not a relationship between God and other men. So for sure. That is good Old Testament theology. Would, as Jews strayed from the right, as they often did, as, we've, as you know, if you're an Old Testament reader, uh, would they have gone further and gone and said, you know what, maybe the kings are gods too? They certainly would have done that. And the reason why is it was very common in the ancient world to say that kings are gods. And so that would have been a fairly normal, wrong theological move for unfaithful Jews to make. So, does that answer where you're going? Because in the Old Testament, no, the king was not God per se. He was adopted by God. She was asking, when did they start associating God with being the king? David. Yeah. I was well. Like, that he was the king before they rejected him and wanted Saul. Or, you know, Saul was chosen. Like, at first, God was the king. And then they're like, well, no, we want a human king that we can see. Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering if he's trying to bring it back. Like, no, God is always your king. And this guy that you can see is, is actually the king that is God from before. I think you're right on that. Yes, I think it, there's an explicit association, right? Um, you know, in terms of the, you know, the... You know, theologically speaking, you know, the difference between the hidden and the you know, clear will of God, permissive will of God versus his decorative will, right? Did God want the Israelites to have a king? The answer is no. He did not want them to have a king, right? As you said, when Samuel complained about the fact that they wanted a king, God said, not your problem, my problem. They're not complaining against you, they're complaining against me. 
Saul, if I recall correctly, was never called the son of God. I could be wrong on that. I believe that started specifically with David. All right? And it's very clear there, right? That's in, within the Davidic covenant for sure. And so I do think, yes, because God replaced um, tribal cooperation with king, he did make an explicit special relationship with the king to establish king's mind, and therefore I'm king because I establish him. So yeah, I think that's right. Totally. Any other thoughts? There's no way that we can know what they, how they got with verse 7. If God is one here in Israel, if God is one, why are there two gods in this verse? It's a fantastic question. But there's no way to know how they, Is there a way to know how they do it? If you would have had writings from that period of time, then we could know. Right? And that's what... And that's... And, that's getting ahead of ourselves. There's another one of these ambiguous places in the Psalms where Jesus says, quotes a Psalm and says, what do you do with that? Knowing that they have no answer. All right? Christianity has an answer. The Christ is God. All right? Trinitarian theology. Proto-incipient, early Trinitarian theology. Okay, now, uh, if you would turn back to the book of Hebrews. So in terms of his argument, all right? The, per, the point of the first chapter is to argue the supremacy of the Son over the angels. Right? He will argue the supremacy of the Son over other things as well, later in the book. But here it's primarily over the angels. The angels are ministers. What's the Son? Well, he's sitting on a throne. That doesn't sound like a minister. And the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. All right? So that's his basic argument there. Verse 10, what does that quote from? Verses 10 through 12, according to your Bibles. Psalm 102. All right? Take some time. Go read Psalm 102 and figure out what that means. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 28, specifically. Um,
What are we thinking about Psalm 102? Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, the heavens are the work of your hands. What is the point of that? What is that trying to say in the psalm? What, is, what idea, theological notion is it trying to bring out? It's, yes, it's attributing all creation to, uh, to God. And what's the difference between God and creation here? What's that? He will do with it as He will. He will do with it as He will. Yeah, that's true. God is eternal. Right? That's one of the main things. Eternal. Right? They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. And you will change them like a robe. Right? Just like you can change a shirt, God can change creation. He's that powerful, and he's that eternal, while creation itself is extremely transitory. All right? Now, how do you tie this to Jesus? Using the prior verses. All right. He's putting Jesus in there as over the ministers of the, the messengers of the wind, ministers of flame. Mm-hmm. Yes. He didn't just start as being born as the king or raising to king. He was already there. Yes. He just made him bigger all the way each time. You've got a theological progression in the book of Hebrews. All right. Jesus is Jesus is God's son. Okay. Well, Jesus is king, and all the men, all the angels, are supposed to worship him. I mean, that's heretical from a Old Testament standpoint, right? From a New Testament standpoint, not so much. And then finally, not only he wasn't created, he was he's eternal. Like God the Father is eternal. That puts him in an entirely different class than any other created being. You're absolutely right. Yes? I just want to go off on what he said. Um, it's 
not like Jesus was adopted. It's, it's not so, so he's not promoting adoptionism here. That's right. Uh, what he, he's doing is establishing a clear uh, creature, cre- uh, creator-creature distinction. Yes. Saying Jesus goes in this category as creator rather than creature. Absolutely. Now, that's how you can see the flow in Hebrews. How in the psalm can you connect it? All right? Verse 12. Where would you get that? Well, if you look at verse 12, and, and I, I threw it over to them because this is a kind of a long one to go through all the context. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are, you are remembered throughout all generations. You will rise in a pity on Zion. Well, that sounds just like what we were talking about in this other psalm. And so the author of Hebrews is reading psalms and psalms and psalms. Uh, Clearly, lots of psalms. Because the next selection, which we won't have time to go into detail, is yet another psalm. He's reading them and going, this one clearly talks about Christ, the Son, as God, enthroned. This one is too. Aha, Psalm 102 is also, as it turns out, about Jesus. I think that's ultimately the connection. And I think there's some other connections as well. But to me, that's the most explicit one. Now, if you would turn back to the author of Hebrews, once again, whoever that was, the book of Hebrews, the very last verse that is quoted, and we won't take the time since we are running out of time. Uh, Verse 13, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now this is from Psalm 110. If you turn to Psalm 110 real quick. This psalm is obviously extremely important for this particular book, the, the book to the Hebrews. Or, all right? And the reason why is it's not only this verse that's quoted. You see in 1.10.1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So once again, we have Lord talking to Lord. All right? Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That theological point is a major argument in the book of Hebrews a few chapters after this. And so this one's interesting because he will use it at least for two separate arguments, the same very short psalm. And the only other thing I'd point out about this in terms of how do you connect it to the Son, all right? You've got Jesus implicitly doing this, though he doesn't fully give the answer. I think it's just because he wants to leave the people listening to him stumped. He wants to leave them in confusion. Uh, if you, you will see this in Matthew 22, Mark 12, and Luke 20. So this is in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew 22, verse 44. This is right after the, um, you know, what is the greatest commandment question, all right? Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, all right? So now he's turning the table. You keep asking me hard questions, I keep giving you answers. Now I'm going to ask you a hard question and see what you can tell me. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, well, he's the son of David. 
Okay, so the Messiah will be in the son of David. Okay, and he said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord. All right, so in other words, what he's saying here is David is speaking about somebody that's not himself. All right. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. All right. The author of Hebrews is not like Jesus in this case. Jesus wanted to leave them in confusion, right? Because they were being punks. All right. The author of Hebrews is like, nope, let's make this very clear. Jesus is God. Psalm teaches that. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And they can't answer it because they, well, the Jews were not into early incipient proto-Trinitarian theology. Right? Okay, so that is it for today. I wanted to make sure we got through the, this, uh, this particular chapter. Uh, next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we will continue in Hebrews chapter 2. Does anybody have any final questions or thoughts before we dismiss for the day? One clue to that first verse of Psalm 110 is one word, Lord, is spelled in all caps, and the other one is not. Mm-hmm. And what's the significance of that? What, what's all caps mean? All caps is the covenant name of Yahweh. That's right. And the other Lord is reference to the Son. That's right. That's yeah, right. I've got a question. Anybody else? I've got an NIV here. And Matthew, in, in Matthew uh, 22, 44, both words, Lord, are spelled with no, no all caps. Mm-hmm. They're both spelled in small case. Yes. Is that an error on the part of the NIV? It is not. Um, the reason why this would happen is... Um, the Hebrew word for um, the covenant name of God is that. If you bring it into English, you will see that it's all consonants. All right? Generally speaking, um, in your Hebrew manuscripts, you won't find consonants around that word. Partially so that people would not be able to say you. Right? You lose the consonants, you lose the ability to say it. And this was meant to highlight the fact that this is the covenant name of God. Of course, they wouldn't have that. They would have this. All right? You're never going to see this in the New Testament. The reason why is that's Hebrew, and the New Testament was written in Greek. And so, in, often in your Old Testament, translated into Greek, you're going to see the same word for both, which is the word for Lord. And so, if you look in your New Testament manuscripts, you don't see the covenant name of, the Old Testament covenant name of God. Because it's not written in Hebrew. It is written in Greek. So therefore, you don't see it. So not a mistake, as it turns out. Good question, though. Anybody else? So okay. just a comment. So um, this morning when we read through the Proverbs, and multiple times it was Lord in all caps, we said Jehovah. That's right. Which is a, a, an attempt to bring this Yahweh over into where is it? Isn't it the vowels from Adonai they added to yeah. that to make Jehovah? Yes. Which Yehovah, I guess, is more than that. But that only happens in the Old Testament. 
Yes. That comes up in our worship because when we see Lord in all caps, we say Jehovah to remind us that's not just the normal Lord, that's like the covenant name. That's right. We never have that issue in the New Testament because it's not used. That's right. Because it's a different language. It's just always one single word. All right. If you've heard in songs, all right, uh, you'll hear this word, um, Kyrie eleison. Kyrie. Um, that's English. All right. Kyrie eleison is Lord have mercy. All right. If you've ever heard that in a song, this is the Greek word for Lord. And so that's the word that you'll see in the New Testament because... The New Testament's not written in Hebrew, it's written in Greek. Yeah. And so we, you can maintain that in the Old Testament. And so when we read from the Proverbs, just like Bill said, it's there and it's maintained. And you'll see that in your English Old Testaments a lot too. And that's what they mean. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's go ahead and be dismissed. If anybody wants to talk about any of this more, um, talk to me during lunch.